In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. Optimism continues to rain down on Wall Street over the U.S. economy, over corporate earnings. Nobody is worried about anything, you know, including the pretty big backup that we got in long-term interest rates yesterday. A little bit of relief today, but not much. But if you look at the chart of the yield on both the 10-year and the 30-year, to me, we're about to break to the upside. You know, a lot of people have been talking about the ominous implications of a inverted yield curve because the yields on the long end are getting so close to the short end that they might invert and that would signal a recession because most recessions or pretty much all recessions before they happen you get an inversion of the yield curve but i think that we're not going to get an inversion of the yield curve i think that long-term rates are going to rise and so the yield curve is actually going to steepen as we are going into a recession, because typically in a recession, or at least, uh, you know, the post-war experience in these boom and bust cycles that the central bank has created, normally they are well farther in advance in their tightening cycle at this point in an expansion. You know, we are already 30% larger than the average or longer than the average expansion. We're less than a year uh, from this being the technically the largest expansion in history, yet the Fed has only managed to raise interest rates to 2%. Normally, at this point, we'd be well north of 5%. And so it's a lot easier to invert the yield curve when you've got short-term yields up above 5%. And normally, the Fed is trying to fight off inflation. And that's one of the reasons that it's raising rates. And it is the fact that the Fed is now making money more expensive and we're you know, deeper into the cycle that the long end actually starts to fall, anticipating the recession that is going to result from the tighter monetary policy. And so that's what ends up inverting the yield curve. It's not that the inversion of the yield curve causes the recession. It's just that long rates start to fall as investors start to look beyond the expansion to the next recession and they start pricing in the next round of rate cuts. So it's not that the inversion causes the recession. It simply is a good indicator that a recession is coming. So you don't need an inverted yield curve 
to get a recession. And we're going to have a recession this time without the yield curve inverting, given how little headway the Fed was able to make in normalizing interest rates. And so this time, we're not going to get an inversion of the yield curve. And in fact, I think the long end is going to be rising because of higher inflation and because of waning demand for U.S. Treasuries in the face of exploding supply, especially when we move into recession, because the budget deficits are already up in the stratosphere without the recession. But I think as the economy relapses into recession and the Fed has to go back to quantitative easing, uh, the budget deficits are going to completely explode and there's not going to be demand globally for those dollars. You know, last time when the Fed was doing QE, uh, the long end also went down. I don't expect the Fed to get that lucky. I think the long end of the yield curve is going to rise even as the Fed is suppressing short-term rates. So what that means is that this yield curve, rather than inverting, is actually going to get steeper and steeper. Now, maybe some people will misinterpret the steepening of the yield curve uh, as a sign that we're not going to have a recession, but that would be the wrong conclusion to make. In fact, when yields increased yesterday, the dollar went up a bit. It recovered some of the big losses from Friday and gold went down. Uh, and the rationale was, oh, interest rates are going up. That's good for the dollar. And that is bad for gold. But that is not true, especially if you look at the reason that rates are rising. And it's not short-term rates that are rising. It is long-term rates that are rising. But they're rising because of higher inflationary premiums being built in uh, to the bond market and because of supply and demand. Too much supply, not enough demand. All of this is bearish for the U.S. economy, which relies on a constant flow of cheap money. So you make that cheap money less cheap, that is going to undermine the U.S. economy. And more inflation is bad for the dollar by definition because the dollar is losing purchasing power. And if your currency is losing purchasing power, then it is less valuable. You are less likely to hold the currency if it's losing value. And of course, higher inflation is bullish for gold because gold is an inflation hedge. <laughs> Although, you know, despite the optimism that we got today, the NASDAQ party was not able to hold. You know, the NASDAQ made a new all-time high today. The record high was 79.28, but we managed to close negative on the day. Now, I wouldn't say that this was a substantial reversal. It was not a key reversal, uh, but the gains did not hold on the NASDAQ. The Russell 2000 also closed down on the day, but the Dow Jones was up just under 200 points. The biggest gainers, I think, were the energy stocks. Uh, oil was up strong today, and the oil stocks in the Dow were up about 2% each. Uh, Chevron, uh, ExxonMobil. Uh, so that, you know, giving the Dow a boost, obviously those stocks very, you know, not nearly as important or not important at all in the NASDAQ because they're not part of it. Uh, so the NASDAQ wasn't able to get a boost from those names. But there was a lot of excitement early on and that excitement did not last. And maybe that's uh, an indication uh, that we are headed for a correction. Certainly, Rising bond yields. And I think we're going to break back above 3% on this move in the 10-year. And this time, we may be above 3% for good. We'll see. We need to take out the high, which was not quite 3.1. Or actually, yeah, I think we got the 3.11 uh, last time around before we pulled back to about 2.8. But I think that we could blow through those highs. And again, that is going to scare the markets, you know, on the inflation front, too, we did get some news uh, on inflation today. We got uh, the PMI numbers that came out and the prices paid number uh, in this report. Prices increase. This is that purchasing managers, you know, are paying for goods and services. Prices jump by the most they've ever increased in the 11-year history of the survey. Now, I'm not sure how much. I looked all over the internet to try to find out the exact percentage that prices jumped, and I couldn't find it reported anywhere. But the one statistic that was reported is that whatever the price gain was, it was the most prices have ever jumped in the 11 years that they have conducted this survey. So that tells me that there are a lot of inflationary forces in the pipeline, we're going to see that CPI, the most recent number we got, was 
year-over-year gain on the uh, PPI. We're at 3.4%. These numbers are headed much higher, and obviously higher inflation is going to be a bigger problem for the bond market and a bigger problem for the U.S. economy because it is stagflation that we're getting. In fact, we got existing home sales yesterday. We get the new home sales tomorrow, but existing home sales are a much bigger part of the market. But we actually dropped for the third consecutive month. I think they were looking for a slight gain this month. Instead, we had uh, three declines in a row. That hasn't happened for about four years. Uh, But also on a year-over-year basis, monthly home sales are now down for four consecutive Months. In fact, in the first half of 2018, existing home sales dropped by 2.2%. Now, Donald Trump is out there talking about the greatest economy ever. Well, if this is the greatest economy ever, I mean, home sales, existing home sales are down 2.2% from where they were last year. I mean, you wouldn't uh, expect that type of number. If the economy was as great as the president claims, then maybe you'd have more people buying houses, right? More people have jobs. He keeps bragging again today about how low the unemployment rate is. Well, apparently all these employed workers uh, don't have the money to buy houses because that's why the sales are dropping. Now, we are going to get the first look at Q2 GDP. That's going to be coming out on Friday. And this number, there's a lot of hype on it. I mean, I think the Atlanta Fed is looking for 4.6, I think, or something like that. New York Fed, much lower. I think they're still below 3%. But the consensus consensus is up there, I think around 4.5. I mean, the whisper numbers, a lot of people are thinking that we're going to print above 5% in the first quarter. And I'm sure the president is going to love that. Everybody's going to start tweeting about how great this is, how this has never happened under Obama, which, of course, is not true. Because during the eight years of Obama, we had plenty of one-off quarters uh, where we had an aberration. And that's likely to be the same thing this time. In fact, one of the things that I read recently that makes sense as to why we may actually get a a big print, a 4% handle, maybe even a 5% handle, although I doubt 5%, but we'll see. But apparently, the trade war and the threat of tariffs has caused businesses to try to get their imports in before the tariffs kick in on both sides, right? So everybody is worried about a trade war and about tariffs. So all the importers, both in the U.S. and maybe in China and other places who are worried about tariffs in the U.S. and then retaliatory tariffs in other countries, businesses want to hurry up and bring stuff in before the tariffs go into effect. Uh, So they're building their inventories to try to front run the tariffs. And so that will have the effect of driving economic activity forward because those inventory bills uh, go right into GDP. So ironically, uh, by threatening a trade war, Donald Trump could end up, you know, goosing the GDP growth in the second quarter. But that's not going to be sustainable because we're simply moving growth that may have taken place in Q3 or Q4, and we're shoving it into Q2. So that means we're just going to get weaker numbers going forward so that when you average it out, it's going to be a much lower number. I mean, you go back to the 2013, in the third quarter of 2013, we got 4.5% GDP growth. Now, Obama was pretty excited about that. I don't think he tweeted about it, but he was certainly claiming credit. And I remember Wall Street was like, this is great. We finally have liftoff, right? We're going to take off. We got 4.5% growth. But that was it. I mean, you know, it, it faded quickly. In fact, two quarters later, we actually got a negative print. Uh, first quarter of 2014, we got minus 2.1. Of course, they blamed it all on the weather. But, you know, that spurt was a one-off event. And obviously, for the entire year, we were well below 3%. Then it happened again in 2014. We got a 5% print, 5.0 in the third quarter of 2014. Two quarters later, 0.2. First quarter of 2015, 0.2. So it didn't last. It wore off. This has been typical of this you know, phony recovery that you know, began under Obama and is continuing under Trump. Every once in a while, you get a big number, but it doesn't last. But as soon as you get the big number, 
everybody gets all excited as if we're finally taken off. And I'm sure that Trump will be no exception. In fact, he'll, he will, you know, herald and take credit for this in an even bigger way, probably, than Obama was able to take credit when he temporarily got a, a, a big number. But whatever this number is, it's going to be the high watermark for the year. And it's downhill from there until we slide into recession Maybe by the end of this year, maybe early next year, we end up in a recession. And then what? Right? Everybody that's been buying ahead of this economic data, everybody that's been anticipating all of this economic growth, well, they're going to find out that you know, they, they bet wrong. And that's going to be especially problematic in the currency markets where so many people have been buying the dollar based on this growth fantasy. Also in the gold market, which has also been impacted negatively by this false optimism on the outlook for the U.S. economy and on the future trajectory of Fed monetary policy. The only question is, when is the Fed going to have to admit uh, that it's going to start cutting rates? When is the Fed going to admit that it's going to have to launch QE4? And of course, now that the president, and I mentioned this on my last podcast, and actually I've noticed a lot of uh, articles written now uh, basically pointing this out that the president is now planning to blame any kind of economic problems that may develop uh, if his tax cuts don't work or if the, if the tariffs backfire. He's setting up the Fed as the fall guy, which is what he's trying to do. Uh, but now the Fed is in a very uncomfortable position of when it does uh, reverse policy of trying to not look as if it's caving into the president's demands, that it's still acting independently and deciding to reverse course on its own without any influence from politics or from the president. And to the extent that there is an impression created that the Fed is political, which it is anyway, and I don't know how we've been able to fool people uh, to believing that it's not, but I guess if you know you bring it out in the open, that's going to make the next easing cycle that much more dangerous uh, for the dollar and that much more positive for inflation hedges like gold uh, because people are going to start to feel uh, more strongly that the Fed is political and worry about monetary policy being pursued for political reasons. And when you pursue a monetary policy based on politics, obviously the politicians always favor easy money. They always favor uh, inflation. I mean, why would the politicians ever want to take the punch bowl away, right? That's supposedly the job of the Fed to take the punch bowl away before the party really gets out of hand. Well, the people who are drunk at the party, why would they want the punch bowl gone? I mean, they want to spike it even more. They want the party to keep on going, right? So if you turn the punch bowl over uh, to the president, well, you know, he's never going to want uh, the party to end. He's going to, you know, keep liquoring it up until you know, everybody, you know, drops dead of alcohol poison. Of course, the uh, trade war is not going to be the cause of the next recession, but it may certainly exacerbate it, although it was going to be horrific anyway. So uh, making it worse is not, you know, really going to be that big of a deal considering how bad it's already going to be. But what it does do, and I've said this before, is it does set the president up because it creates uh, an easy way for his opponents whether it's the Democrats or even the Federal Reserve, right? Trump's going to blame the Fed uh, for raising rates, but the Fed is going to turn right around and say, no, it's your fault for, for the trade war. And the trade war makes it easy for everybody to blame the recession on Trump because they can make the false claim that everything was great before he became president. He screwed it all up with his trade war. And the, and the president is digging in his heels now uh, on trade. In fact, he was treating out today that tariffs are great that we should love tariffs. I mean, because they're gonna, we're gonna punish all these countries that aren't playing fair. Uh, they've been robbing us blind. We're the piggy bank, uh, and everybody is stealing from us. I mean, Trump is right. There is a theft going on when it comes to international trade. He's just got the players wrong. It's Americans who are robbing the global piggy bank, right? Remember, we have these huge trade deficits. That means that we as Americans get all sorts of consumer goods that are made in other countries that require scarce resources to produce, land, labor, and capital. Uh, and these are goods that make our lives better. I mean, obviously, we wouldn't be buying them if they didn't improve our lives. So we get all kinds of consumer goods, uh, and they increase our standard of living. And 
what do our trading partners get? They get IOUs that their central banks warehouse in the form of treasuries and hold them as foreign exchange reserves. But how are these reserves, these excess reserves building up at central banks? And some of them, you know, they create these gigantic sovereign wealth funds. But how does that trickle down into the man on the street? Because he doesn't have more consumer goods like the average American. Doesn't matter to the typical guy in China, you know, how many U.S. dollars uh, the Chinese government is stockpiling in reserves, right? So in the short run, we're the ones that are benefiting. The Chinese are getting robbed of their purchasing power. They're getting robbed of the consumer goods they might otherwise have had for themselves that are instead being misdirected uh, to Americans. Now, to the extent that some of China's trade surpluses are invested in real assets like U.S. stocks or U.S. real estate, yes, the Chinese get the benefit of increased wealth, but they don't get the short-term benefit of increased consumption, right? That's down the line, right? They're growing their wealth now but they'll get the benefits later. The flip side for Americans, we're selling off our assets, losing wealth in order to have more consumption today, right? So we get a higher standard of living today because we're selling off our assets to consume. But in the long run, we don't own the assets anymore. We don't own the income that is derived from those assets. And so in the long run, our consumption goes down uh, because of our profligacy. But none of these points are being made by Donald Trump. What he doesn't realize in the here and now, Americans feel richer and live better lives as a direct result of these trade deficits. The trade deficits are enabling this phony standard of living uh, that is right now benefiting the president because it makes voters feel more affluent than they otherwise would be if Americans had to live within their collective means. But the danger, of course, politically, is that that is going to change. Now, in the long run, we need to change this dynamic, not because we will have an immediate gain. We won't. We will have immediate pain. But we're going to have even more pain if we don't fix the problem now, if we let the problem get bigger, and then it gets fixed in a crisis. The problem is, based on the way Trump has framed uh, the issue, it's going to look like he caused the crisis because he said everything was so great. And now the voters are going to get hit with some unexpected pain. And we haven't really done what's necessary to get the long-term gain because we're not focusing on the real problem. Trump keeps wanting to blame our trading partners for not playing fair with tariffs. That's a ruse. That's not why. All of it has to do with uh, Congress uh, with the Federal Reserve. These are self-inflicted wounds because of bad monetary and fiscal policy and excess regulation. All this stuff needs to change, yet Congress is doing nothing to do that. In fact, I just uh, re-recorded today, and it's going to be up on my YouTube channel. I took my two congressional testimonies. Remember, I put these up there a long time ago Mr. Schiff goes to Washington and Mr. Schiff returns to Washington. I testified in front of Congress in, in 2011 and in 2012. And of course, I haven't testified since and I don't expect to get another invitation. And if you go and watch this new, new video, uh, you'll understand why. I mean, again, it's not because I did a bad job. I think I did an excellent job. They just don't want anybody up there putting them in their place and telling the truth, uh, which is why they're not going to bring me back. But the point is, Congress is not interested in doing the right thing. They're simply interested in doing what looks good politically because they're motivated by self-preservation. They're motivated by their own uh, careers and perpetuating that. And so they're going to legislate with that agenda. And so they're not accepting responsibility or doing what needs to be done. And, you know, if you haven't listen to my congressional testimony, listen to this new version, because I put both of them on one. And in fact, when I initially posted my first testimony, I had to edit out some of what I said, because I basically insulted some of the security regulators by pointing out that they had, you know, fined me for hiring people. And my compliance officers didn't want that in the video because I had actually sent out the link to all my Euro-Pacific uh, customers. And so therefore, 
uh, you know, we for compliance purposes, we didn't want to insult the regulators, so we cut a lot of stuff out. But I'm not doing that this time. I'm just putting it on the YouTube channel. So I put that stuff uh, back in there. So you can see my complete unedited testimony uh, because now that uh, uh, those those words on my fines for hiring uh, too many people are are back in the video. So it should be up later today. It may, it may not be up before the podcast is out, but if you keep checking, you'll see the new video there. And it's probably going to be pretty long. It'll probably be about maybe 50 minutes or so when I combine two videos. But it's definitely well worth uh, your time to watch it. In fact, while I'm talking about some of my old videos, I know I got a lot of new listeners to the podcast now because I was on the Joe Rogan show, uh, as you know, or you may not know, last week. And obviously, he's got a big audience, and so that gave me some more exposure. In fact, my podcast, before I was on the Joe Rogan Show, iTunes had it ranked as 98 out of the top 100. So I barely made the list. And I shot up as high as five. At least that's the highest I saw. It might have been higher, but I didn't I didn't notice it up there. But I got up to five in business. And I made I got up to 40 in all categories of podcasts. So the number 40. Of course, I wasn't even on the list before uh, I was on the Joe Rogan show. The key is going to be to see if I can stay on the list. Uh, but apparently, or obviously, there are some people who now know about me who are listening to some of these podcasts who were not listening to them uh, before I was on the Joe Rogan show. So in addition to my congressional testimony, I just want to point out some of my, let's say, YouTube videos that I think people who are just becoming familiar with me might want to uh, take a look at because I think they were pretty good. I mean, obviously, the most popular one I did myself. Now, there have been more popular videos that other sites have done uh, about me and featuring me. But as far as videos that I've shot myself and uploaded, the most successful one I did was five years ago at the Democratic National Convention. I went to both the DNC and the RNC conventions that year when I was still doing my daily radio show. And I went undercover as a liberal. And I was asking the uh, the Democrat de- delegates if they would support an amendment to the platform to ban profits. And just listen to one delegate after another telling me why they would support such an amendment to actually ban profits, right? So companies could not have any profits. But imagine the disaster that would result. And it shows you how little the Democrats, these are the delegates, these are the cream of the crop, these are the smartest Democrats, and they're that dumb. So it's a really funny video. And, you know, people said, hey, you know, what about all the, you know, I must have really edited it. Yeah, there were probably a few people, I can count them on one hand, uh, that didn't want to ban profits or at least cap profits. So, you know, I, I didn't have to edit much. I mean, I, if most of the delegates felt this way, uh, and it's hard to believe, but so you could check that one out. It's called Democrats Let's Ban Profits. That one was really good. Uh, my mortgage banker speech, of course, that was from eight years ago. That's when I really laid out uh, the problems in the housing market in front of 3,000 mortgage bankers. Uh, so I would encourage uh, people to uh, watch that YouTube video. The Walmart one, uh, Walmart shoppers support everyday high prices. I had a lot of fun doing that video. Um, and that one I was, you know, I was undercover. I pretended that I was I was at Walmart and I, I was, you know, 15 for 15. I made up the name of this organization and I wanted, I was there to, you know, see if people would be in favor of a $15 minimum wage. And everybody said they were. And I said, that's great. But, you know, Walmart needs to raise prices in order to afford the higher wage. And I calculated that a 15% price increase would cover $15 minimum wage. And I wanted to know if the shoppers would just add 15% of whatever they spent into this box that I had because I was going to give it to the workers later that day. And I was just going to divvy it up so they would actually help the workers earn more money by paying higher prices. And of course, nobody wanted to contribute. So it's a, it's, I, it's a very funny uh, video. You know, I got a lot of death threats as a result of this video. I mean, it got up on a lot of left-wing sites and they really wanted to make fun of me. And believe me, I got inundated with emails and stuff like that. People were threatening my life because I was such a horrible person that I tried to show uh, the dangers of a increased minimum wage. Also, you know, one of my favorite videos, and I actually mentioned this YouTube video on my last 
appearance on the Joe Rogan show. So a few people watched it, but still underappreciated, only 234,000 views. Uh, and it's entitled, Is a College Degree Worth the Cost? Uh, people should check that out. I had a lot of fun doing that video on, uh, on, on Bourbon Street. I was just down there and I was interviewing all the people working there, asking them basically a few simple questions. Did you go to college? When did you graduate? What was your major? And how much do you owe? And practically every single person I asked went to college, graduated, and owed a bunch of money. And they were all tending bar. They were bouncers at strip clubs. Uh, they were driving pedicabs. I mean, they were emptying the trash. I mean, nobody had a real job, but everybody had fancy degrees. And they borrowed a lot of money to get them. So it's a great video to really illustrate uh, how much people overpay to go to college thanks to government. This is thanks to government policy. Another video, one of my top videos that a lot of people liked was my last appearance on CNN. It was six years ago. Hard to believe. I was on Farid Zakaria. GPS is the name of the show. And it was the last time I was on CNN. Six years ago. And I used to be on CNN a lot when Bush was president. I was on a lot on CNN. And once Obama became president. I was on just a few times, and then six years ago was my last appearance, and they pretty much blackballed me ever since. I think they were happy to have me criticizing Bush. They didn't want me to criticize uh, Obama. But now that Trump is in the office, and I'm kind of critical of Trump, I'm surprised that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not invited back on. So maybe the issue uh, is more involved than that. But you look at this video. I'm arguing with three liberals and the host simultaneously. I'm the only guy there talking about free markets and capitalism. In fact, it's all about Obamacare. And everybody on this panel says that now that we have Obamacare, insurance costs and health care costs are going to go down. I'm the only one that argued they would keep going up. And of course, I'm the only one that was right. So, I mean, that's a great uh, video to watch to show what it's like to have, you know, one conservative uh, libertarian, uh, you know, with a group of liberals. And of course, I'm sure all these liberals have been on CNN many times since. And I have not been invited back once. Also, I have an inflation propaganda exposed video. That one is pretty interesting. It's got a picture of me with a bunch of products in front of it where I really went into some of the ways that the government manipulates the CPI to understate it. Also, I did two videos, Janet Yellen Exposed, part one and part two. Part one's got a lot more views than part two, but you really should watch both. And what's great about these videos is I look into all the speeches that Janet Yellen gave back in 2005 and six, where everybody said she was you know, warning about the financial crisis, she was warning about the housing bubble, and nobody listened. And the truth is the opposite. It's a complete fiction. Janet Yellen was completely clueless, had no idea there was a problem. In fact, not only did she not warn about it, she was telling people not to worry, that other people who were warning were wrong, that housing prices would keep going up, and that even if they went down, it was a small part of the economy, so there's nothing to worry about. She was completely clueless, yet the left, including Obama, when he nominated her, they just christened her as some kind of Cassandra, you know, that was the voice of warning. And if we only had Janet Yellen at, at the top, if she'd only been Fed chairman, you know, maybe we wouldn't have had a crisis. Complete, unadulterated nonsense. And nobody has ever reported on it. But I called it out. Uh, and you got to you got to watch that video. And I read directly from her scripts to show how completely clueless she was. I'm just looking through some of these videos. Oh, my stand-up comedy video. That's a lot of fun. I actually did this four years ago. I came in second place. I forget there were two women that were in first place. They were a team. But I, I came in second place. Uh, and it was reporters uh, from various news stations that came up and did stand-up comedy. And so my whole stand-up routine was pretty much just out of my, my talks that I would routinely give just about the government. But what was so funny about my routine is that I just, I just spoke the truth about all the dumb things that the government was doing, and they're actually funny. The government is doing things that are so dumb that if I just explain what they're doing, it becomes a comedy routine. Except, you know, the laugh's on us. Instead of laughing, we should be crying. But it's pretty funny. Uh, and so you can you can watch that one. Peter Schiff's stand-up comedy. Uh, that one's out there is another good one to watch. You know, another video that I, I thought was really funny and didn't get nearly as many views as I thought it should have got was the one I did about, a, it's a cartoon, uh, Ben Bernanke being interviewed by Oprah Winfrey about how he's been doping the economy for years. And I did this 
you know, when they had the Lance Armstrong controversy, right, he admitted that he was uh, using, you know, artificial enhancers. And I thought, what a perfect analogy uh, for Ben Bernanke. And I, I mean, I think this thing is hysterical. I mean, I really liked it. I had a lot of fun creating it. Uh, now, some people, you know, maybe complain they thought they don't like these cartoon voices. I think they make it funnier. I've always liked these cartoon voices. Some people think they're annoying. You know, I just thought it made it even funnier, but you should check it out. I mean, I'm surprised I only got 84,000 views on this particular video on my YouTube channel. And by the way, when you're on my YouTube channel, make sure and subscribe. So if you're just listening uh, on the podcast, go to the YouTube channel and check out these videos and, and subscribe. Of course, there's a bunch of videos on here. I mean, there's so many good ones going way, way back. If you have time, you can look through them. You know, the Who is Peter Schiff one, which is the main video from my YouTube channel, that one's got over a million views now. That actually was modified from my campaign video when I ran for Senate in 2020. And of course, I do have the Peter Schiff was right video up there, uh, a copy of the original. The original one got about 2 million views back in 2009. Uh, it was really popular when it came out. And that original one has been taken down. So you can no longer find that one. But there's many copies of that original Peter Schiff was white video, which basically features a lot of my uh, interviews on CNBC, on Fox mainly, uh, that took place in 2006 and 7 when I was warning about the crisis. But I actually have all those videos. You can go into my archives and my YouTube channel and you can go back and you can see the live interviews on CNN, on MSNBC, on Fox Business, on Fox News, on all these channels. I was on regularly. I was on every week on something, on Bloomberg. And you can see all the things that I was saying that I'm no longer allowed to say on the air because it's all been saved. And in fact, I think one of the reasons that some of these networks may not want me on is because they know how bad I made them look uh, when we had the last crisis. And maybe they don't want to be, you know, footage in the next video where, you know, people can be seen next to me on the same screen saying a bunch of stuff uh, that ends up making them look very foolish when ultimately they're proven to be wrong. So maybe if you keep me off the air, then you don't have to look foolish. The problem is I'm on the air on my podcast now. Uh, and so people do have the opportunity to hear me, even if the conventional media won't give me their mic. I've got my own mic. So I can't stand on, on their soapbox, but I got my own soapbox. And hopefully it's going to get bigger. And by the way, you know, there's one thing that everybody can do to help my podcasts reach a larger audience. You know, I was talking to a guy at Freedom Fest and he did a, he does a podcast and it focuses on real estate. And he was in the top 10 in, in business. And I was, you know, 98 at the time. And, you know, we looked at our, the views and we each got about the same amount of downloads for each podcast. So I didn't know why he was so much higher than me when he didn't really have a larger audience than I did. And, and he asked me how often I ask my audience to to uh, review or rate uh, my podcast. And I said, well, I've never asked anybody to review or rate my podcast. He says, that's the problem. He said that in order to rank high, it's not just having a lot of downloads, but you need reviews you ne and you need good reviews. So basically, I'm going to ask for the first time that if you've been listening to this podcast and you enjoy it, just, you know, give me five stars, you know, you know, yeah, just put a review in there because I think the more good uh, uh, reviews I get. And of course, there's also a way to write your own review, not just, you know, give me five stars, but you can actually write a review about how much you enjoy the podcast, how unique it is, how you look forward to it. I mean, I get a lot of people uh, who email me and tell me in person how much they enjoy the podcast. So I think it's important to just take the time on iTunes to just write a review Give me five stars. If you don't like the podcast, then fine. I mean, in fact, I'm sure all the people that hate me have already gone up there and given me one star and wrote how you know awful it is because there are people that all they do, they got nothing better to do than to wait till I post you know, a YouTube video and then put the thumbs down immediately before they even know what I'm talking about. So I'm sure you know whatever negative reviews, they're probably there. And in fact, now that I've said this, I'm sure it's just going to embolden people who have not already put up a negative review to go put one there. So we got to make sure that all the people who actually like my podcast, which I think are the large, the vast majority of people who listen, actually enjoy listening. They're not these people that have no lives where they simply, you know, want to put up uh, negative uh, comments. So I'm sure the vast majority of people that actually listen. In fact, most of the people that are thumbs downing me 
that they might not even know that I said this because I doubt they actually listen to the podcast. They just want to criticize it without listening to it. Uh, but they may hear about it somehow. So we got to make sure that the people that do like it, you know, go and review it. And the reason I want to be higher up in the rankings, I don't know that it actually does anything officially. I mean, it's not an ego thing either. What my hope is, is that there are people out there that, you know, listen to podcasts based on just looking at the podcasts that are at the top of the charts and they'll see one that they haven't heard of and they'll say, oh, let me give this one a listen, right? Because it's a top rated podcast. A lot of people are listening. So maybe it's something I should listen to too. So I think that getting higher up means that more people are likely to start listening to my podcast, especially younger people. And the younger people are the ones that really need to listen to me because they're the ones that are, you know, so far out there to the left and I know I might have pissed off some of these younger people on my the Joe Rogan podcast because one of the things I said on that podcast was I thought the the voting age should be increased. I you know it's 18 and I think it should be higher. And I think Joe asked me, well, how high? And I said, I don't know, 25, 30. You know, and I thought that would be a more appropriate level. And I'm sure a lot of young people are really mad that I I, I don't want them to vote. But you know. The, the purpose of voting is to have good government. And I don't think you have good government when you have a bunch of 18-year-olds voting. I mean, just like I don't think you have good government if you have a bunch of 10-year-olds voting. I mean, the Democrats would just assume have everybody vote, right? I mean, they, they want the elementary school kids to vote because they're going to win, right? The Democrats will overwhelmingly win the elementary school vote. So obviously, they want those kids voting. I mean, how do you win votes from, you know, from 10-year-olds? Promise them ice cream. Promise them cookies. Promise them shorter classes. Promise them no homework, right? More fun. You know, it's easy to give free things to kids because what they want isn't even that expensive, right? But if you want good government, you don't want people voting for free stuff. And I pointed out to Joe Rogan that when the American Republic was started, the voting age was 21. And it didn't go down to 18 until the, uh, the Vietnam War because of, you know, the fact that we were, we were uh, drafting people and they were 18, but they couldn't vote. And so there was a lot of pressure. They were saying, hey, if you're too young to vote, you're too young to fight or old enough to fight, old enough to vote, which of course was nonsense because that would mean, well, if you're too old to fight, then you're too old to vote. I mean, fighting and voting are not the same. They, they require a different skill set. You know, when you're to fight, you know, you got to be young and strong. You know, it doesn't matter if you know anything about free market economics. You just have to follow orders and, you know, be able to fight. Now, of course, I was against the draft. I mean, I am against the draft. So I thought the draft was wrong. I think the government needs to raise an army voluntarily. And if they can't get the volunteers, then they have to increase the pay. And if they can't increase the pay, then maybe they ought to rethink the war. If they can't drum up enough support among the public for the war, then maybe the war is wrong. Uh, so, so two wrongs don't make a right. But anyway, they, they lowered the, the, uh, the voting age to 18 uh, so that now they could say, well, okay, you can vote when we could draft you. But if you look back to 21, right, when 21 was the voting age, first, first of all, what was life expectancy back in at 1789? 50, 55, 60? So by the time you were 25, I mean, you were much closer to the end of your life than today when you're voting at 18 and life expectancy is over 80, right? But also think about the maturity level of your typical um, 21-year-old back in, you know, 1800. I mean, chances are if you were 21 in 1800, you'd probably been working for seven or eight years. You probably were married and you probably had one or two kids, right? And, you, you know, you, you lived on your own. So you had a lot of real-world experience. You understood uh, the economy because you were active in it. You probably owned some property already. You know, I mean, so you, you, you had a, a real financial stake in maintaining good government. I mean, now you got people voting when they're 18. Most 18-year-olds today have never had a job. I mean, maybe even 30, 40 years ago, kids used to have part-time jobs. Now nobody gets a part-time job. Kids don't work after school anymore. They don't work summers. So you got people voting who have never worked a day in their lives. They've never paid a nickel in taxes. They live with their parents. You know, why are they voting? I mean, are they going to vote responsibly? No, they're going to vote for whatever idiot comes out and promises them free stuff, right? Free education in particular, because they're about to go to college and they'd rather go for free. Uh, and, you know, even if the voting age were 21, it would still be too uh, young. If we wanted to wait 
for a comparable period in life, right? Where people were employed, working, had families, had property. How old would the average American have to be to have the same level of experience, to have the same amount of skin in the game, right? That their counterpart did 200 years ago. I mean, 30 is probably still too young. You got a bunch of 30-year-olds that still live with their parents, that have never been married, that have no kids. And yeah, maybe they've had a job, but maybe not. Maybe they, maybe after, after they got their undergraduate degree, they got a graduate degree. I mean, maybe they've never really worked. And then, of course, maybe when they got a job, they worked for a nonprofit, they worked for government. I mean, they have no idea how the economy works. They have no idea uh, how a business works, right? I mean, so the purpose is good government, not everybody voting. And, you know, if I was an 18-year-old today, I would be in favor of raising the voting age to 25 or 30. Why? Because I knew I would know that my vote would be canceled out by a bunch of idiots who were the same age as me. So let's say I want the conservative to win or a libertarian to win, right? I don't have to vote for him to win. I just have to make sure that the people who would vote for his opponent can't vote. And if that means I have to give up my vote, then I'm better off, right? What's the point of voting for a loser? What's the point of having a dozen people cancel out your vote, right? So what you want to do is say, look, let's let older people make the decisions who have more experience, right? Who are more likely to vote for a good candidate, even if it means I don't vote, because the goal is having good government, not voting. Voting is a means to an end. It's not an ends in and of itself. But the politicians want everybody to believe that voting is so important, right? It's not. It's the outcome that matters. Now, you know, of course, one of the problems with younger people not voting is, you know, they're the ones that are getting stuck with all the Social Security taxes. And you got all the old people that are collecting the benefits. But believe me, the people who are 25 or 30, they've got 30, 40 years of paying Social Security taxes and never going to get a benefit. So they can obviously vote. But I think that the damage done by having young people voting for a bunch of socialists is not worth thinking, well, you've got Social Security. And of course, we shouldn't have Social Security either. So again, two wrongs don't make a right. Just because you have these older generation that is getting Social Security doesn't mean that we have to let 18-year-olds vote just so we can have some people uh, you know, voting against this intergenerational Ponzi scheme. But the problem is most young people aren't even smart enough to realize that they're getting conned. They don't even know that. I mean, most of these young people are voting Democratic, and it's the Democrats that are probably more wedded to Social Security. Though even the Republicans, that's the third rail of politics. Nobody will touch that, right? Nobody wants to call that out. I talked about that on the Joe Rogan podcast as well, and I don't have really time to get into that. In fact, this podcast is already longer than I thought. Um, but I did want to just mention again a little bit about the, uh, the voting age, because I know that some of the young people would be turned off by that because they think, oh, I'm anti-young people because I don't want them to vote. No, I am pro-young people because I want them to grow up in a free country. I want them to have all the opportunities to be as prosperous as possible. And I realize that democracy is actually uh, an enemy of freedom and that they have a better chance of, of achieving their goals if their generation, that you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds aren't voting for their leaders because their leaders are going to pass policies that are actually going to undermine uh, their success and their progress. But they're not sophisticated enough yet. They don't know enough yet about the real world to understand that, right? When you're 18 years old and you've never worked and you're very idealistic about the way the world works because you have no idea, right? Now, there could be some, look, obviously, when I was 18 years old, you know, I was raised by my father, right? And so obviously, you know, I wasn't brainwashed uh, by the left, by the public school system, by the media. I had my head on straight. And, I, you know, I would have voted for Ronald Reagan uh, if I, you know, in 1981, but I missed that vote. I wasn't quite 18 yet. Uh, but that's who I would have cast my first vote for if I was just a little bit older. So, you know, my vote would have been would have been a positive vote. But so what? The vast majority of other 18-year-olds would have canceled me out. You know, so... Uh, just because there are some people that could make a rational, informed, good decision doesn't mean that we open it up to everybody. Because again, the goal is to try to have the best government possible. And that means limiting suffrage to people who are more likely to, to cast a responsible vote. I mean, that's why we don't let kids vote, right? You, you can't vote from birth 
You don't have people voting in, in elementary school. Why? Because we recognize, well, they're not sophisticated enough. They're not smart enough. Well, that applies to people who are 18, right? They don't become smart enough when they still live with their parents and they've never had a job. So the, the age needs to go up. But to the extent that, you know, I angered some of them, I need more and more young people understanding. And especially since these young people are voting because there's no chance that we're ever going to raise the voting age. It's stuck at 18 forever. And so we got to try to make sure that the young people out there understand the benefits of freedom and capitalism and understand the dangers of socialism and of socialism that's masquerading as capitalism, crony capitalism, right? Which is what we have. Corporatism. We have the U.S. government controlling the economy with regulation and taxes and then blaming everything that goes wrong on the free market when everything that goes right is because of the free market and everything that we achieve is despite all of the roadblocks that government creates and the level to which they go to undermine our success. So the more young people that we can have listening, and of course, the younger people are probably more likely to listen to podcasts than the older people. And so I need to get to them. And I think having this podcast uh, ranked higher, we'll, we'll put this on the radar of more people who may stumble upon it, may start to listen to it. And then, you know, and I've heard this story time and time again from people who have found me, whether it was from the Occupy Wall Street video, which I know a lot of people just watched again because we just reposted that. I think we got about 50 or 60,000 new views on that since I uh, was on the Joe Rogan show. But a lot of people, once I turn them on to liberty and freedom, right, once I appeal to them, and then I, get, I open their eyes and then they do their own research. They start to read, right? They start to tune out all the propaganda and start thinking for themselves, right? I can change people's minds. And so you can help me change people's minds by helping to get my podcast to be seen by more people. And the way that you can do that is to go on there on iTunes and, and rate it. Put the stars on there, write up a review and help me get my podcast to have a higher ranking so that more people will see it, more people will listen to it, and then more people will be affected by it. And that's the way to try to win this uh, political war, which is going to be a war. And as I've been saying over and over again, there is a giant move to the left. People have misinterpreted the results of the last election. The electorate is moving left. Look at the Democratic Party. It's moving way left. But that left wave is going to infect the, the, the moderates and even the Republicans in this next recession, which is going to be worse than the last one and is going to be entirely blamed on free market capitalism. And so we need to make sure as many people realize that they're being lied to, just like they were lied to about Janet Yellen, just like she had no idea there was a financial crisis. But the media could repeat a lie often enough that people believe it's the truth. And the point of my podcast is to get the real truth out there and try to pierce uh, the smokescreen of lies that is being blown by the government, uh, by Wall Street, and by the mainstream media.